0: I'm Greg Dalton. I'm Arianna Brocious. And this is Climate One.
1: It's time to stop polluting our communities, polluting our world. We don't have much time and we must end the climate crisis now.
2: That's Reverend Lennox Yearwood, the inspirational leader of the Hip Hop Caucus and one of our most compelling interviews of 2023. We'll hear more from him later in the show.
0: A lot has happened in 2023, and we're spending today reflecting on what made us feel a pang of fear and a jolt of excitement. We'll talk about the year that was and look ahead to 2024.
2: In this hour, we're going to hear from a bunch of amazing, insightful people with ideas for real climate progress.
0: Right. So many amazing people this year. First, we're going to start with the news.
2: The 28th annual UN Climate Conference has just wrapped up in Dubai, and Greg, you were there for part of it.
0: I was, and I'm surprised by the outcome just reached in overtime. The conference in an OPEC country resulted in nearly two hundred nations agreeing to transition away this decade from fossil fuels, oil, gas, and coal.
2: This is a really noteworthy achievement, and we want to stop and make sure people understand that this is this is historic. And it's a surprising win for Conference President Sultan al- Jaber. For decades, petrostates like Saudi Arabia have blocked even mentioning the words fossil fuels in these climate agreements, which is pretty shocking in its own right.
0: Right. And Al-Jaber, an oil executive in the United Arab Emirates, faced fierce criticism for being an oil man leading a conference aimed at reducing fossil fuels. Now he's proved his doubters wrong.
3: We should be proud
4: of our historic achievements. We have given it a robust action plan to keep within reach. It is a plan that is led by the science. It is the UAE
2: consensus. This is big
0: news for climate. It really is. Though we should add some caveats here. The agreement is unenforceable. This whole thing is based on voluntary action. There are lots of loopholes and opportunities for polluters to ignore the promises. And words matter. This is a signal to investors and policymakers that the end of fossil fuels is finally beginning around the world.
2: There's a lot in the agreement, so we're going to hit on just a couple of other highlights. It also aims to halt and reverse deforestation, And the deal calls for tripling renewable energy production by 2030. And that in and of itself is a really big, audacious goal that will be pretty
0: hard for countries to meet. It will be. We can't possibly stop using fossil fuels until there's enough clean power to replace it.
2: And again, this agreement overcame objections from fossil fuel producing nations like Saudi Arabia and Iraq and emerging economies like Nigeria and India, that are running on fossil fuel or dirty energy.
0: Right. This is a voluntary process. It's all based on peer pressure. Individual countries still get to decide their own timelines for transitioning away from fossil fuels.
2: And those timelines are running out. We really have a a few short years. I mean, 2030 is not that far away. So turning to some other climate news, it was such a hot year again This October was one of the hottest ever, and I bet listeners could feel it. I certainly could here in Arizona. I just kept waiting for things to cool down.
0: Right. This year was intense in many ways, and that heat is a dangerous trend. Deaths from severe heat increased more than 50% in the U.S. between 2018 and 2021. We talk with Kathy Boffman-McLeod from the Adrian Arst Rockefeller Resilience Center, who's working with communities to deal with extreme heat.
5: The scary part is a lot of times these uh, deaths and illnesses are masked. You know, it's called the silent killer uh, for a reason. We, We don't hear it, we can't see it, and we don't have a lot of data that tells us. As climate
0: awareness has moved into the mainstream, we find ourselves talking more about all the ways burning fossil fuels impacts our lives today. And the truth is that energy and water intersects with everything around us. And if you're wealthy, you may not notice strains on the food, energy, and water systems around you. If you're poor, you probably feel those strains more directly.
5: The story of extreme heat is a story of race and a story of discrimination. Exposure to extreme heat increases asthma. It means that you have to run the air conditioner more. And if you don't have air conditioning, that heat exacerbates underlying conditions that people have. And people in food deserts with little access to healthy food and health care end up having their conditions like diabetes or heart disease um, exacerbated by heat.
0: This is an environmental justice problem one that the Biden administration has been working to address. Earlier this year, I spoke with White House Climate Advisor Ali Zaidi about the administration's work on gathering momentum and excitement around big-ticket climate initiatives.
4: We have a relentless focus on getting greenhouse gas emissions down, but we have such a bigger opportunity right now, and that opportunity is to restore that American dream. And so when we go about tackling the climate crisis, we're not just measuring our progress in terms of clean energy gigawatts built or greenhouse gas million metric tons reduced. We measure it in the people who felt left out, left behind. How many of them can we pull into the fight as we move forward?
0: If 2022 was a year of big legislation with the passage of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, 2023 was a year of policy implementation Of course, that's going to take a long time to roll out and for us to see the benefits, but it's really starting to get underway.
4: The amount of investment we've seen triggered by this policy means that by 2030, the U.S. will be capable of producing 13 million electric vehicles worth of batteries. That's a really big deal. We sold 16 million vehicles total last year. So think about the pace of the transformation. We have increased, by the end of his first term, we will have increased our ability to manufacture solar panels by eight X. We're conserving land. We are dealing in the agriculture sector, 60,000 farms, 25 million acres of farmland in the U.S. signed up for climate smart agriculture. So, you know, If you're a climate voter in 2020, you did what everyone bet against was possible. For decades, what had seemed completely out of reach, that every single sector of the economy would be now lined up with irresistible economics, driving towards decarbonization, and that we'd be doing it in a way that's centered around workers and communities and justice, I don't know what greater evidence there is of democratic power in propelling a system that had run on emissions for decades towards decarbonization.
0: The scale of the things he's talking about really are broad and deep. One concern, of course, is that a Republican president might try to claw back some or all of those gains. Right,
2: and that would really slow the momentum that we've started to see with this infusion of money. Okay, let's each share something positive and negative about the year in climate news, and then we can talk about other things we're keeping an eye on.
0: Good idea. Let's do it.
2: Okay, I'll start. My High was the successful case brought by Montana youth against their state using language in the state constitution about the right to a safe and healthy environment. This was a big legal victory for climate, and we still have to kind of see what it means. We actually did a whole episode on the rise of climate court cases. So I'm watching that space to see what develops, but it was really exciting. Greg, what about you? What was your good news story
0: from 2023? Oh, it's so hard to pick. There is so much good news happening. Eight countries are scaling renewables fast enough that show that the Paris goals are achievable and possible. I had a mangrove awakening. They're really powerful at sequestering carbon. My biggest one is when I heard Al Gore say that once greenhouse gas emissions reach zero, global temperatures would stop rising in just a few years. That's really powerful. It means that global leaders could actually see and experience the benefits of decarbonizing. That's really good news. And Ariana, how about your low?
2: My low would have to be the continued slowdown or just lack of progress in taking the action necessary to address climate change. We've known for a really long time what needs to happen. There are voices from all sectors calling out for these changes and for rapid, significant action. But we're seeing, you know, just kind of a lot of the same business as usual. This year, we saw the UK prime minister roll back climate goals, which was really disappointing since they're one of the global leaders. And here at home, as you mentioned, we're waiting to see the outcome of next year's presidential election and what that could mean for the climate agenda President Biden has set in motion. So we'll have to see. Greg, what's keeping you up at night?
0: Oh, many things. I'm a terrible sleeper. You know, I think the most important thing is the human cost of involuntary migration, people thrust from their homes due to drought and food insecurity. At the climate summit in Dubai this year and last year in Egypt, we sought out people from the global south who have these stories to tell. I looked them in the eye and really listened. They're really suffering, and that suffering is caused by us burning fossil fuels.
2: And that's gonna only continue the longer that we don't take the action that's needed. So, okay, well, let's quickly talk now about what we're looking ahead at and watching for 2024. For me, there's a couple things, as I mentioned, this climate litigation at home and abroad, and also here in the U.S., the continued developments around the electric grid. This is something we covered in a past episode this year, and it's wonky and complex, but so essential because we have to be able to generate and move all this renewable power that we're trying to get going to the places where it's needed. So hoping for some more developments in that space. Greg, what are you keeping an eye on?
0: Ballot boxes. The Economist reports that 2024 is the biggest election year in history. Countries with more than half the world's population, 4 billion people, will send their citizens to the polls. Elections in the U.S., U.K., and India will have a major impact on how fast we move away from fossil fuels, or don't.
2: And, you know, covering all this climate news can sometimes make it easy to be bogged down or feel depressed about where we're at. But a lot of people, including many we talked with on the show this year, say taking action makes them feel better. One of those was the incomparable Jane Fonda.
6: And I have found that every single time I start to get depressed, if I take action, it disappears. Greta Thunberg said, don't go looking for hope. Look for action and hope will come. And she's right.
0: Yeah, and there's, ex- there's research that backs that up, uh, that doing you know, helps. And the community you find in doing is part of that. The relationships, it's the action in concert with other people. Exactly. So you, you were arrested in Washington, D.C. It was your first time since the 1970s. You were arrested with a bunch of celebrities. Uh... And a
6: bunch of non-celebrities. I mean, this wasn't just all about... What I loved about it is celebrities introduced frontline activists, you know, who normally whose voices wouldn't be heard, and it was all recorded, and we haven't and per- perpetuity, and hundreds of, I mean, lots and lots and lots and lots of people watch this stuff. And people travel from all over the country, mostly women, mostly older women.
0: And m- many of whom watched your videos, and that's why they were there. Well, they like Grace and Frankie, too. <laughs>
6: <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been out there in the trenches as an activist when people really hated me, and then I've been out there in the trenches when I was Grace and Frankie, and people loved me. And so I've been at both, and it really helps to have a good, successful TV series behind you. You're going out there.
0: You had your mug shot taken. You were handed a Bloney and cheese sandwich. You were locked in your cell. What would take us to that moment? What are your thoughts and feelings when you click you're in a jail cell in Washington, D.C. for protesting on climate?
6: This this may sound weird, but. When you are putting your body on the line for something that you would give your life for, the deepest thing you can possibly believe in, there is. Su- while they're putting the handcuffs on, those white plastic things, they hurt like hell, but you feel so liberated. I felt so free, it was weird, huh? <laughs> um, but you know, I'll have to be honest, I'm white, I'm famous, I'm privileged, So I knew they weren't going to hurt me. I knew that that I was safe. So it was really my job to kind of like record what was going on.
0: So you did that for a period of time. Many people were arrested, famous people, regular people, lots of brave people. What do you think that Fire Drill Fridays accomplished?
6: Okay. We were not, as has been reported in the press, our goal was not to affect government. We know from the Yale Climate Communications Project that there are A majority of Americans, like 70 percent, are very concerned about the climate. But they haven't taken action. And they say, because they haven't been asked. The great unasked. This is our job now,
0: is to reach the great unasked. We've also got a lot of active climate folks with far less privilege. People who are making a big difference in their local communities.
2: One young person giving me hope is Nayeli Kobo. She lives in South Los Angeles, and the apartment where she grew up is right across the street from an oil well. She became an activist after she started having severe health problems starting around age nine. It got to the point where the nosebleeds
7: got so intense I couldn't sleep in my own bed anymore. I would have to sleep in a chair to prevent choking on my own blood. I developed asthma, and that's something I'm always going to have to live with now. I had heart palpitations and I had to use a heart monitor for several weeks. I got body spasms that were so intense, I couldn't walk. My mom would have to carry me from one place to the other. My mom developed asthma at 40, which is really
2: rare. And my grandma developed it at 70, which is unheard of. Nayeli ended up with reproductive cancer as a result of her exposure. She was incredibly resilient and sacrificed her youth to fight the industry and its toxic exposure. Because I was so young, I didn't realize what I was up against. (laughs) I just thought I was
7: fighting grown-ups. But I did not understand that I was fighting big oil, a multi-billion dollar corporation. And
2: I think it helped a lot not to know that at the age of nine. She had a few big successes, shutting down their neighborhood well and helping secure the passage of an ordinance that banned new oil and gas development and will actually phase out existing wells in L.A. County. This year, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill banning new wells within 3,200 feet of schools, homes, and buildings. But oil companies have managed to put an issue on next year's ballot to overturn those community protections. So Nayeli is still fighting. Lives are on the line. There are over 4 million
7: Californians living a mile or less to an active or idle oil and gas well. Think of your mom. Think of your grandma, your niece, your nephew because these are human lives. Oftentimes we get distracted by the big number or the dots on the map. And we forget that every dot represents a human. And for me, I felt like at the age of nine, someone could look at me in the eyes and say, you don't deserve to breathe clean air. But what they didn't know was that I was a nine-year-old who was I'm probably still is obsessed with Justin Bieber, that I love dance, that I love music, that I love eating, that I love hanging out with family. That makes me who I am.
0: You're listening to Climate One's Year in Review episode. If you want to go back and listen to one of the previous episodes we've mentioned today, Check out the show notes for links or simply subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen.
2: Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or a review. You can do this right now from your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend.
0: Up next, how knowing the carbon holding value of a blue whale could make us appreciate them more.
3: So if you could speak our language or if we could understand their language, they would be saying, hey dude, why don't you pay me? I'm helping you survive.
0: We'll be right back. We talked about a lot of different issues and ideas on the show this year, including the role of agriculture, how to decarbonize the trucking industry, and the role of nuclear and hydrogen in the clean energy future.
2: We talked about the crazy energy demands of Bitcoin and the history of the American Buffalo. We had great conversations with economists, scientists, activists, and musicians, and even people who helped us understand what some animals might think or say about climate changes. One of those was Ralph Shami, an economist with the International Monetary Fund who fell in love with blue whales.
3: I remember that moment, it's like today. I looked at her and I thought, what are you? How is it that I didn't know you existed? And by the way, you have to understand, the blue whale is the largest creature that has ever lived. You can fit an African elephant inside her mouth and would disappear completely. I mean, she could have swallowed us and no one would ever know, but she didn't. She fed gracefully around us.
2: He came up with an economic argument for why we should protect them. When they're alive, they eat plankton, which absorbs CO2. And when the whales poop, it sinks to the sea floor, effectively removing that carbon from the atmosphere. And then when a whale dies, it also provides a carbon sequestration service.
3: And what I was interested in, because economists and finance people think on average, what's, how much does a great whale capture carbon on average? I had to calculate it myself. And that's the number now that you see all over the world, people talk about 33 tons. That's basically my number. And uh, put, that,
2: put that number into context for us. What does that represent when people are thinking about carbon?
3: That represents 1,500 trees on the body of a whale. And that whale, because they're negatively buoyant, because they're so heavy, when they die, they sink. And anything that sinks below 1,000 meters is sequestered forever, unless you disturb it.
2: Ralph Shami wants us to consider the value whales are providing to us and compensate them for it by protecting them and their habitat.
3: Think of it this way. I work for the IMF and I provide a service and they pay me a salary. The IMF does not pay me a salary because Ralph is a nice guy, know that Ralph is a husband or, or, or a father or a good citizen, or just because I provide a certain service that the IMF is interested in. Do you guys agree? They said yes. Okay, well, here's a whale and it's providing a carbon sequestration service on behalf of humanity. If she could speak our language, what would be the wage that she would demand? That's it. People, because after that, people say, oh, you're pricing away. I said, no, man. What I'm trying to tell you is the whale, unfortunately, doesn't speak English, <laughs> doesn't speak dollars and cents. And, and so we've taken them for granted. Well, they're going around helping us fighting climate change. So if you could speak our language or if we could understand their language, they would be saying, hey, dude, why don't you pay me? I'm helping you survive.
2: And when you think about it that way, there are so many species who might have a thing or two to say about how humans have ruined
0: the environment. That reminds me of a conversation I had with Bernie Krauss. He's a soundscape ecologist, and he uses audio recordings to document ecological collapse and biodiversity loss. He can literally hear extinction happening.
8: When a, an environment is healthy, the, the sounds are defined in these very carefully illustrated niches. When it's under stress, that all breaks apart. And especially when human noise is is, uh, an issue that's causing the stress in that habitat. And all of the critters begin to search for their niches so that their voices can be heard so that they can survive. When a habitat is sick, it shows in its voice. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we gotta pay some attention to that because we can hear the changes that are taking place now. Right, and and so much of uh,
0: the mainstream news media is filled with images of melting glaciers, et cetera, burning forests. You once wrote, quote, A great silence is spreading over the natural world, even as the sound of man is becoming deafening. How did you come to that conclusion?
8: Well, because in my recordings over the years, I've been recording now since 1968, My recordings over the years, I'm seeing the changes over time when I go back and visit, revisit these places that I've captured, uh, you know, years before. And uh, the density and diversity of wildlife, of vocal wildlife, birds, insects, frogs, uh, and some mammals, uh, has changed radically.
0: It's amazing and heartbreaking. He can actually hear the changes over time when he returns to places where he made recordings years ago. One place in particular was Lincoln Meadow in the Sierra Nevadas in California.
8: They had told the residents around that area uh, that they were going to do a new model of logging called selective logging, taking out a tree here and there. It It was relatively new at that time. And that there'd be no environmental impact as a result. And I said, fine. I said, can I go up and record before you do that? And I did. I went up in June, uh, right on the solstice of 1988, recorded the habitat uh, in the Sierras at about, oh, 6,700 feet. And uh, that summer, the logging company did their selective logging bit, and I came back a year, exactly a year later under the same conditions and recorded again. And what I found was that not only were there lots of birds there, but they weren't singing very much. Hmm. And even though with a photograph, the place looked unchanged, um, there, there, wasn't, there didn't seem to be a stick or a, a tree out of place. But to the ear, the difference was astounding. It was so quiet and so scary.
2: I find it really exciting all the ways people are using creative tools to talk about climate change. Another person who comes to mind for me is the author Paolo Bacigalupi. He writes speculative fiction and his stories are filled with dark climate futures. Some of them are really accurate and kind of scary, and Paolo told me that's intentional.
9: I hope to wreck their home. Like, I mean, I hope to make them feel like the walls of their home are closing in on them, that nothing that they live in is stable or secure. Um, I hope that like they are horrified and think oh just because today looks good doesn't mean tomorrow is safe to leave them so profoundly disturbed that their home no longer feels like a safe place and they have to start engaging with the external world that like is sending us signals all the time but we continue to find our ways to ignore that either with our, you know, our Netflix or our Instagram or whatever the thing is. It's like keeping us involved in the slap fight of the moment or whatever it is instead of like looking at the big pattern of like where is our future headed.
2: Denise Baden, who's the editor of this No More Fairy Tales anthology, she says that fear is an effective driver of plot and it can be an entertaining tool, stories that instill fear, but that overall that's counterproductive in actually generating the change we want to see, like in the climate emergency, for example. So I'm curious what you think about that perspective.
9: I'm sympathetic to the idea. I think that if you want to create change in a democratic society, people have to believe that there is actually a threat. In order for them to believe that climate change matters they have to extrapolate forward into what climate change is and they have to have that grounded well enough in their world in their physical spaces that they that it's no longer an abstraction that they think oh maybe in 30 years they have to think maybe my property values are going to die in five and that's a problem and so we need to deal with it if you don't make it visceral and bring it into their world I'm not sure that you get the kind of democratic sort of upwelling of concern that moves politicians or that gets people onto planning commissions and stuff. Uh, I think in very young people, I think that there's a, a stronger sense of emergency, but I think that there's a huge value in generating unease in people who are otherwise feeling like I can probably skate by. Um, you really want to kind of illustrate like, well, what happens if our insurance industry completely collapses because we didn't do the sort of risk analysis correct on how hurricanes and other climate emergencies are going to damage you know, our, our infrastructure? Um, you want them to feel like, oh, just because I live in a safe space doesn't mean that that actually is a safe space. You want it to impinge and impinge and impinge. And so I get the critique of... You know, dystopian stories or apocalyptic stories. I mean, specifically apocalyptic, more than you know, dystopian. But like that, these things might be, you know, bad or motivate people in bad ways or create the wrong framework for people to understand how to engage with big challenges. Um, it's totally possible. I think, though, that there is this element that a well-written story of warning can create a sense of unease and a sense of awareness that otherwise doesn't exist for people. And so that means that they're suddenly alert and engaged in a way that they weren't before.
2: Of course, people understand and experience the climate crisis in so many different ways. Making progress on climate solutions starts with communicating and understanding each other. And that can come down to the words we use.
0: Words are so powerful and reminds me this year I had two conversations with Representative John Curtis, Utah Republican who chairs the Conservative Climate Caucus. And we talked about how the words we use can contribute to miscommunication that distract us from what we have in common.
10: I think we do this on a number of issues and not just climate. I think you could point to immigration and other issues where we just quickly bring up these 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 words or these terms that are divisive that spread us apart. And at the end of the day there's actually very little that separates us on climate as Republicans and Democrats and there's far more that we agree on. And Republicans do want to leave this earth better than we found it. We have ideas on reducing emissions. And I think a lot of Republicans make the assumption that to be good on climate, they have to embrace the Green New Deal. No, they have to bring their ideas to the table. And I also talk a lot about the fact that the the myth is that we need to give up energy independence. The myth is that we need to give up low prices. The myth is that we have to give up affordability to reduce emissions. And I think that's turned a lot of Republicans off, that myth. And so we talk about the fact that, like, let me show you how we do this without sacrificing energy independence. Let me show you how we do this without sacrificing affordability, reliability.
0: I saw that you met with some Olympians about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, Utah's in the running to host the 2030 Winter Olympics. Many of those events would happen at ski resorts in your district. What do you see as your role in that effort from a climate standpoint?
10: First of all, let me say use this opportunity to point out uh, in in a very red state, Utah, a very conservative state. uh, We do uh, a lot of oil and gas and coal. That one of the ways that we can get people turned on to this conversation is to show them how it impacts them directly. So in Utah, when you talk about the ski industry, um, people all of a sudden sit up and listen and say, "Okay, I'm listening." Right, Mm and Mm and it's not and so it's it's easier for me to point out the. Shortness of the ski season—the the the, that is starting later and ending sooner—than it is some of the something you know ten thousand miles away or two thousand miles away. And so, I I think this is a really good opportunity to say, look, local uh, situations sometimes are what what it's going to take to get people engaged. And for me, two things—well, really three things—have been very important: pointing out what it's doing to the ski industry in Utah, uh, pointing out the wildfires uh, that we're having, and uh, the drought. And these are three easy places for very conservative Utahns to jump in to this conversation and to care. And uh, let me tell you, they care deeply about the Great Salt Lake and uh, the shortage of water. Utahns, regardless of the political affiliation, they care deeply about forest fires. They care deeply about this key season. And, they, and these are not political issues. And so uh, for me, uh, having these things in my state ha- has been a, a good opportunity to, to, to get people engaged who might not otherwise engage in this conversation.
0: Those myths he's talking about are rooted in the information bubbles we live in, and we actually can have a lot of the same things. Renewable energy is cheaper and cleaner and it can be all American.
2: Yeah, and this idea of needing to connect on shared values and terms is something we also talked about with Senator Cory Booker, a Democrat from New Jersey.
11: I want people to expand their, their understanding because the, the, the most toxic threat to our nation right now, I believe this, and we have real problems in America and we have real problems globally, but I think the most toxic threat is the hate that is growing on Americans for each other. And, and, and this is creating an environment where we can't even talk to each other or affirm our common values. I was campaigning pretty hard in the last midterm election, traveling all around the country, and I sat down Uh, on a plane. And I often have people saying nice things to me. Often, unfortunately, people, you should all send me Mother's Day cards because I often get called, you mother something else. (laughs) Um. (laughs) So I get all kinds of reactions across America as I crisscross the nation. But uh, people were being really nice to me on this plane ride. And I sit down next to a mom and a daughter, 80 and 60, and they uh, they, they don't know who I am. And here I am, a large African-American male. And for my ego, some people might think this is wrong, but for my ego, I loved hearing what they said. They go, sir, who are you? Are you a professional athlete? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I could be if I wanted to. <laughs> but I said, no, ma'am, I'm, I'm, I'm a United States senator. And immediately, all of us in America, if you meet a politician, a congressperson, you want to know what tribe they're in. Are they in your tribe, their tribe, or my tribe? The otherizing, the, the impersonality of that. Where do you stand, with me or against me? Because that, and, and it's too much we have a binary world in America. And I said, ma'am, I'm a Democrat. And she looks angry at me and says, I should have brought my Trump hat. <laughs> now, there is a moment, all of life, our power is not in what happens to us. Our power is never in the stimulus, it's always in the response. And we have a choice To respond with love empathy compassion or to respond with negativity hate lower frequencies of our being and i look at the woman and i'm not i'm not dancing to this tune and i looked at her and i go oh my gosh donald trump he signed two of my biggest pieces of legislation into law and and she seems surprised by that and i go through some of the common values of that legislation one on criminal justice reform one on getting investment into low-income rural and urban areas in america and the record was scratched It's a long flight, by the end of the flight, we are talking about our personal lives, I learn about their family, they learn about mine, we're affirming our commonality, and talking about some of the problems in America, being we don't talk to each other.
2: Cory Booker is a really compelling, passionate speaker, and you can tell just by the way he engages that he's also a very deep listener.
11: We, We have got to find ways, understanding politics, and again, As consciousness grows, more things become possible. Civil rights legislation failed for years until consciousness grew and we were able to get things done. But for now, we have got to be better at looking for win-wins and not falling into a partisan divide. We have to commit ourselves to creating more dialogue, more ability to affirm each other's humanity and still believe that we have common cause in this country. Because when America acts with a sense of increased compassion and empathy and common cause, we dazzle humanity in what we achieve. From immigration laws that let the entire planet's diversity come here and breakthroughs in science, uh, defying gravity going to the moon, to even affirmations of human rights and human dignity that have put us as a standard-bearer for a planet, we can do these things when we stop hating each other. And even if we disagree, find ways to affirm uh, this commonality. I call it love. People could call it just a- a- affirming your fellow citizenship.
2: You're listening to Climate One's end-of-year episode. Coming up, in the midst of a climate catastrophe, humans show up for each other, sometimes in surprising ways.
12: What's encouraging about how people respond to disasters, you see this deeper sense of, who we are and what we really want who we could be
2: we'll be right back
0: we've been talking about some of the most compelling conversations we had on the show over the last 12 months I feel grateful there are almost too many to mention
2: yeah I know what you mean you can hear all of them on our website or in our podcast feed if you missed any One of my favorite conversations this year was with activist and author Rebecca Solnit, someone who's written many, many books and articles on climate, feminism, and human rights. And she says she finds a lot of value in taking the long view on making progress.
12: Yeah, I think if I have a superpower, it's slowness, which means that I see long stretches of time, which lets you see change. And... One thing I run into a lot with climate is people often conflate impossible with unimaginable. Nobody in 1973 could have imagined 2023, but everything good in 2023 is because somebody in 1973 or some past um, moment fought for it. it. It behooves us all to do everything we can towards that better future for human rights, for biodiversity, for 30 by 30 and beyond and for the climate, a lot of despair, et cetera, comes often from people thinking that if, you know, like if we have, if we make demands of a government on Tuesday and they don't fall to their knees and say they were wrong and we were were right and give us everything we asked for by Thursday, then we failed. And that's just not how change
2: works, although it's how defeat works. Rebecca also talked about why the white Western world cannot just give up on addressing climate disruption.
12: I wrote an essay last year called Despair is a Luxury because for most of us giving up, at some level we secretly know that we can give up and our lives will still be relatively comfortable and safe. And it's easier to give up. Yeah, and you, you I, so and what it, you're really doing is you're giving up <laughs> on behalf of people. You're saying, let those kids starve. Let 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 those let that ice melt. Let those storms destroy the crops of those people in Central America. Let, you know, we're... You, we, we who are relatively comfortable, safe, affluent, and therefore powerful, I think have no moral right to give up. And we're giving up, you know, to let other people die first, other people lose first, other species lose first. I don't think it's ethical, and I think the facts say there's a lot worth fighting for now, and fighting for it is the really good way to live.
2: I've read a lot of Rebecca's work, and one concept that really resonates with me comes from a book she wrote called A Paradise Built in Hell, The Extraordinary Communities That Arise in Disasters. She explains that in spite of what we might think, true community spirit and a sense of belonging and mutual aid emerge in our times of greatest need— And that's especially powerful, considering that in our present and our future, we're going to need real resilience in adapting and dealing with climate disruption and disasters.
12: In order to do what the climate requires of us, there's a lot of very practical, wonky stuff you know and very physical stuff. we need to electrify everything. we need to change how this what the world runs on. But I also think that we need to change our imaginations, our values, our relationships. What's encouraging about how people respond to disasters is you see this deeper sense of who we are and what we really want, who we could be. and I feel like we have to escape from consumerism. We have to escape from the kind of loneliness and isolation that Silicon Valley and a lot of other structures in our society have helped create. We have to feel that we can have an age of abundance, but abundance will be in confidence in the future and the society we live in, confidence in our institutions and each other, a sense of belonging, um, a quality of life that will lie in our relationships to other human beings, other species, the natural world. And so I feel like that what disaster shows is that this is who we can be. It kind of shows a way forward, but we need to change the stories we tell about what a good life, a good society, well-being look like as well.
0: I think that's a very powerful concept and one I've heard from other climate leaders. The idea of framing our future as one of abundance, not scarcity or limitation, which causes us to be self-centered and protective and defensive. I had many impactful conversations this year. One that I continue to think about was with Reverend Lennox Yearwood, CEO of the Hip Hop Caucus. Early in his life, he was active in environmental and social justice, but he moved into climate after witnessing Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath.
1: Hurricane Katrina impacted me personally because I had a lot of friends in New Orleans and seeing them, well, I think anybody, seeing anybody drown and suffer, I don't care if you knew them or not, it's going to impact you. But for me personally, knowing those communities, knowing folks in the 7th Ward and the Ninth Ward and then seeing the pictures and seeing where the water was, clearly uh, you realize that if the water was that high, people could not survive that. And then you just realized that, wow, there are just so many people who are literally dying before our eyes on TV. Something must be done about this. And that was when, I guess, we sprang into action at Hip Hop Caucus. We immediately had our networks together from the past election cycle. And people were being bused all around the country. So because of those networks, people were able to then connect with people. And then we just went right to work. And we haven't stopped since. I mean, I had a good friend who lived on Derjawan Street, Mama D, an amazing, beautiful black woman with these long gray dreadlocks. And, and she lived on Dergewan Street, pretty middle class community, but a community that was built on the backs of black people fighting for just dignity. And why I bring her up now is because when she stayed home, she didn't leave like many people could have. She could have left. But she stayed home and her neighbors, mostly older black citizens who had to ride on the back of the bus and drink from the segregated water fountains, she stayed around. You know, she was in her own 60s and 70s at the time. And as her neighbors, grandmothers and grandfathers began to float down the street, she would go out there and catch him and tie him to the tree in front of her house. And that, for me, is why we do this work. Because no one, and I mean no one, should have to catch their neighbors floating down the street and tie them to a tree. And so for me, since that time, we have caucus created the Gulf Coast Renewal Campaign, have been working to stop literally anywhere, Black or white, Republican or Democrat, neighbors, from floating down the street.
0: That's such a powerful image, neighbors floating down the street and reaching out and saving them and bringing them in. Reverend Yearwood is such a unifying force and such a compelling presence in the climate conversation.
1: We have a movement that puts people into buckets. They say, okay, if you're environmental justice, okay, well then go over here. That's where the Black, Brown, and Indigenous people go. If you're a young person, then go over here with with Greta and Thunberg and, and other groups like that, and y'all stand over here. Um, if you're from Appalachia over here, you're from the Arctic over there. And that is ridiculous because the entity that we're trying to stop and curtail the fossil fuel industry is not in buckets. They are not siloed. And so I'm not sure why we ever thought a siloed, segregated, climate movement would be successful, but it's, it's not. And so I think that for me, I am in essence a silo breaker. And so I, I work to break those silos to bring us together so we can be successful.
0: He works closely with former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg, who I don't associate with hip hop. seems to be an odd pairing, but Reverend Yearwood is frank about the possibilities that Bloomberg's philanthropy
1: provides. You know, David needs some some stones because we definitely fighting some Goliaths. So if Mr. Bloomberg can provide the resources for a few folks on the front line and fest line communities, that have a few stones in their slingshot, then we're all for that. I, I understand. Though, I'm going to be very clear. I understand what white supremacy is. I'm very clear on white privileges, but I'm also very clear that we are in a crisis. And we're in a crisis that can literally have extinction-level type events. And because of that, that means that we have to work together.
0: Rev and I talked about how the climate movement needs better storytellers to get the attention of all kinds of people. Take, for example, the benefit of electric vehicles over gasoline.
1: There's different ways to tell them the same story. I mean, if one person is saying that, hey, you can plug in and, and save the planet, and that's a great story, and we need that story. Other story could be like, man, this this EV is super dope, and it goes really fast, and it's a <laughs> lot of fun to drive. That may turn different people on. Sometimes, you know, you got to make things a little sexy, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what's important. Also, I think that, I think people need to see it just differently, and that's why I think culture is so important—food and fashion. And how we view things, and also I think the movement has a tendency to only create the deep end, and this is one of my things, where everybody has to go to the highest diving board and leap off into the pool into you know fifteen foot water. The pool though should have two ends; it should have the deep end, which is important, but should it should also have the shallow end where the babies can get in and in their little diapers and they could play around in the water. And that's the same pool, the same water. But it allows for everybody, the babies on one side, but also those who want to dive off the deep board on the other side, to be all in the same pool. I think the movement doesn't understand that. I think they just want to create this the deep end of the pool, but you need to create the shallow end so folks can come in and learn. And I think that's what the Hip Hop Caucus is doing. They're creating a pool, the same water, same pool, Same thing, but it allows for different people at different levels to feel comfortable and be in the pool at the same time.
0: I was awed by Reverend Yearwood's dedication and willingness to give everything he has to the climate cause, especially in spite of the fact that he feels his activism puts him at increased personal risk of violence.
1: I have children, and I have a family, and I have friends, and so no doubt about it. I would love to be here in old age, but if someone feels that I am in the way and they need to harm me, my, my goal is just that the next one will pick up the baton and run very far with it so that we can have clean air and clean water. That's, that's, that's the calling sometimes that you have as an activist. You have to make that, and that's where faith comes in at. Me, you know, you have to have a strong faith to believe that it's just not you, that it's something bigger than you, and that something will carry on this fight. And that one day, and at this time, my goodness, with all that's going on, and so much pain, and so much trauma, and so much hurt, you just got to believe that one day, the more that we keep fighting for justice, one day as humans, we will come together and we will make this planet a good place.
0: Are you saying you're willing to give your life to this cause?
1: I am more than willing to give my, my life to this cause because it is a righteous cause and it is a cause we're fighting for. And I know that without clean air and clean water, the next humans don't succeed. And so at some point in time, this is a temporal state regardless. And you know, I'm not gonna be here forever, a hundred years from now. Um, you know, None of us will be here in the room. So because of that, I'm okay with that, um, to know that the next generation, the same way, the exact same way, that there were those who were on the plantations. um, There were those who were on the slave boats. There were those who were on the Underground Railroad and they gave their life so that a little black boy from Louisiana can work with a former Jewish mayor from New York to make the world better
0: that's a great way to wrap up the show. And this year, illustrating how we can reach across divides, different kinds of people can find common cause. We have more in common than we often realize.
2: It's so true. And this episode helps remind us of the innumerable people out there working on climate from all different sectors and places around the world, which is an inspiring and hopeful place to end 2023. And we have lots more work ahead in 2024. You can listen to the full versions of all the episodes we mentioned in today's show. Find us on your favorite podcast app or at climateone.org.
0: Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency.
2: We know talking about climate can be difficult and it's crucial to address the transitions we have to make in all parts of society. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or a review or by sending your friends to our website, climateone.org.
0: Brad Marsland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Arianna Brocious is co-host, editor, and producer. Austin Colon is producer and editor. Megan Basili is our production manager. Wincy Shade is our development manager. Our communications manager is Ben Testani. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy and Philip Young are co-CEOs of the Commonwealth Club World Affairs, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.